Anyway, I'm Kevin. I'm one of the elders here. And um, some of you know, because I, I, I don't know, I tell, meet people or I tell people that I'm an art teacher also. Um, it's one of the things I, I do. Uh, I teach in a middle school. Uh, it's not this one, but I do teach in a middle school. And I teach art. And, and so when I was getting ready and praying and preparing for this sermon, I kept having uh, kind of sort of the past come up in my mind kept having this picture come up in my mind. It was me going to art school for the very first time. And see, here's the thing. If you, and now, it, you, might be, you might have a, a thing that people recognize as a, as a specific talent. See, a lot of people have talents, but our, our culture only recognizes these certain things. These are talents, right? Art's one of them, okay? So, you know, they, people, right? if you have one of these, you might identify with me, okay? But growing up, I was always the kid that could draw, and my parents, they're always, you know, everything I did, everything I did is beautiful. It goes on the fridge. It goes on the wall. Everything's wonderful, awesome. Look, look what Kevin did. You know, if, if, if I weren't older, if I were younger, then my, maybe my mom would have put it on Facebook. But we didn't have that, so. Or even the Internet. But anyway. <laughs> so you look surprised, don't be. So. Anyway, I was that kid, right? So they do that because here's the thing, and I'm doing the same thing with, with my kids. The Bible says to, to train our kids the way they should go, and, and, and one of the things we do is we recognize things that God has put in them, and we, we, we want to mold them, we want to teach them to, to use it, share the gospel, to spread God's love, to bless people. And, and so, you know, my parents, are, they're, that's all they're doing. They're just recognizing, but they're building you up. All your life, right? So you start getting, yeah, hey, I'm good. So then, you know, in school, I'm always the kid. Like, if you're in a group project, you know, then I always get, they're always like, Kevin can draw it. Who's going to draw the cover? Kevin, he can draw. He'll do it. Make him do it. Or, or like, even in high school, it was, it was more like that. I was in this theater class out in New Deal, Texas, out in West Texas. And believe me, they weren't in the theater, okay? If it wasn't a UIL competition, they wouldn't have done it. Okay, so here's a bunch of football players. And they're basketball players too, but that's secondary because football is the only thing that matters. And so they're like, oh, they don't have anything to do now. We're done with football. We're done with basketball. Well, let's be in theater. Let's win a contest. So, you know, they're doing a play. Kevin can draw. Make him draw. You know, I draw the mountains or I draw the, you know. So I'm always the guy, you know, I started kind of getting, and you're known for that, like a reputation. And what this does is it kind of builds you up, you know. It's kind of, it's one of those talents that has a lot of glamour attached to it. You know, it's kind of like music. Uh, you know, I think, I think there, there are a lot of things that are like that, sports, you know, where there's a lot of glamour attached to this specific, specific talent, and art's one of them. So, and it kind of builds up your ego. So, you, you, you know, I start feeling pretty good about myself, thinking I am, I am good, you know. I'm pretty darn good. I'm really good. And then you start, so this is how you graduate high school, thinking, you know, my, you know, my high school teacher raving, you know, putting my, you know, picture in a contest that wins an award, you know. So I go into college, art school, thinking with this attitude, I'm really good. Only thing is... Going into art school, now, this is going to be probably hard to believe. You'll be going, what, art school? Isn't that like basket weaving? Well, I'm going to try to break that, that little, you know, that down for you. That's actually, it's, it's a little harder than, than it sounds. And, and so you go in, it's actually kind of like the art world's version of boot camp, right? So imagine, you've all seen the movies where the guy joins the army. He thinks this is going to be really cool. He's going to get to go to war. He's going to, you know, he's going to be a big soldier. Okay, so, but in the movies, this is how it always is. They always line them all up. They have just freshly buzzed hair. You know, they're all standing there, all in line. Drill sergeant comes in, right? And, and he starts looking them up and down. And, and they always say something like, you know, your mommies, you know, are not here to take care of you, right? And then, you know, I'm your mama, or whatever, yeah. You, you, well, I think I've heard that in the movie. You, you are boys, you know, or even worse, you're little girls. And you, but when you leave here, you will be men, 
you know. That's how they do it. Well, this happened, okay? But this was like the art school version. So I want you to imagine the, uh, <laughs> the drill sergeant, okay? He's, you know, he's wearing overalls, right? One strap is down. They're high waters. He's got a tie-dye shirt underneath, you know. He's wearing sandals. A ring on one of the toes, you know. He's got more bracelets than, you, you know, you should have made out of cloth. I don't know. He's from the 60s, I guess. He's got Jim Morrison hair. Or if you're a little younger, maybe in the 90s there was, you know, Seattle music. They all had the same hair. Okay, so imagine that hair. And then, but he's got a little beard and, uh, you know, mustache, waxed and curled, right? And attached to his hand at all times is, is a coffee mug that looks like a cowboy boot. Okay, so now he is... He's the one looking us up and down, right? So we all come in. We're like, yeah, we're good. We're artists. This is going to be great. College is just a formality, right? I, I go to college because I have to. You know, I want to get affirmed that I am, yes, I am very talented, and then, boom, I get my degree. It's a little piece of paper. It's a formality. But his goal is to break that down. Basically, his goal is to take us down a few notches. Basically, to make us into nobodies. That sounds kind of mean, but really what he's wanting to do is get us in a place where we can actually learn something. Because when you go in there thinking, you know, that's what, and this is pretty much what we all thought, like, hey, we're all good artists. <laughs> I mean, yeah, we might can, you know, you, you might can teach us a thing or two, but it's pretty much just a formality. He's got to tear all that down and get us all on the same level. Basically, saying kind of something to us like what the drill sergeant said. You are, you know, you, have, you are not artists, you know. <laughs> but when you leave here, you will have the potential of becoming one, basically. <laughs> it's basically what they say. And so he began to do that. And the more he did that, the more freeing it actually became. See, it first seems oppressive, Right? What's he taste? What's he saying? My uncle and my aunt and my mom told me I was a good artist all my life. He's got to be crazy. My high school art teacher, what's, this is oppressive. He's telling me I'm not, I'm not an artist. I don't, I don't, you know, this isn't the glamorous art experience I was expecting where I go in a prima donna, I come out a budding, you know, well-known, famous artist. This is not, but then as it progressed, as time went on, it became very freeing. Because really, being at the base level, being a nobody, is actually a really great place to be. Because then, well, for one thing, you've got nowhere to go but up, right? <laughs> you've got nowhere to go but to get better. So we were at a place then where we could begin to actually grow. I want to read, we're going to put Colossians up, that first uh, scripture that I had there. Um, let's see, what was that? Colossians one twenty eight. Okay, so let's read that. Um, <clears throat> Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Now, I mean, we're continuing on with our change series, and or can I change, and, and today... Uh, we're going to learn that change is uh, a community project, that it's really something that we all do together. And so we're going to come back to that in a moment. Now, I actually do want to, I want to read um, a version, the NIV version also, um, which you don't have on there, but, well, you probably do, I don't know. You don't have to put it up there. But it says, he is, he is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. I like that. The reason I like that is because it uses, the NIV uses, goes, it goes ahead and puts the word admonish, or they went ahead and put the word admonish. And in the ESV it says warning, but it's, it doesn't matter. It's the, if you look up the definition of admonish, you're going to see the word warning in it. And, and really to warn someone um, is, is a lot like admonishing them. Um, and so that's why I like that. Now, that's a short little scripture. 
Seems like it doesn't have a lot in it. Can you put it back up? No, take it down. No, I'm good. All right. So, I'm I want to pick on Gary because Gary's usually not the one doing this. Awesome. I'm glad you are. Okay, so I can pick on him. It, it actually has a lot packed in there. It starts with, him we proclaim. Now, if you just, like, read over that, you're going to be in big trouble. Okay, him we proclaim. And then, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, and then, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So it's basically kind of in those three parts. What I love about this scripture is it really takes a lot of the glamour out of Christianity, out of the Christian life. Because let's face it, there's a lot of glamour in Christian culture. It's, I mean, a lot. I mean, we've got our heroes, right? And we have music, big music, sellout concert music, lights. These, I mean, we've got famous stars in, in that area. And, and, and now, even now, if, if we also have church, the church planter, which we are. I mean, we're, we're planting this church. That's what we are. But there's a lot of glamour that seems to be attached to that, too. Because we, we feel like that person is probably some kind of hero or some kind of superhuman, a person that you have to be this kind of person or you're not, you know, the church planter. We have a lot of glamour. There's a lot of feel-good with church. I asked someone once why they went to church, and she said, because it makes me feel better about myself. And at first, that sounded pretty good. But really, and it, then I started critiquing it in my mind, but then I started thinking, well, wait a minute. What about all the times I've gone to church so I could feel like a better person? Kind of like I went to college thinking, this is just a formality. I'm going to I'm going to have my talent affirmed and recognized, and then I'll be ready. And a lot of times, that's what we're doing when we come to church. We're coming to have our goodness, because we really have hearts of gold. Our goodness affirmed, built up, recognized, so that then we can go and do, you know, the good deeds that Christians, you know, are expected to do. But this scripture doesn't really, doesn't really support that, does it? Not very glamorous, is it? We, him we proclaim. Okay, first, the very first word is him, Jesus. So we're not even in there yet. We proclaim, warning everyone. That doesn't sound glamorous. I'm warning you. And teaching everyone, kind of hard work, roll up your sleeves, we're doing some teaching. Everyone with all wisdom, not our wisdom, because we don't have all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Big goal. Takes a lot of work. It's going to take all our lives. That's not very glamorous. Where's the concert? Where's the lights? Where are the big heroes? Well, they're not in there, except for at the very first and the very last of that passage, him, Christ. So this is actually a really freeing passage of Scripture, because what this does is this takes us all down a notch. I don't care who you are, and it makes us pretty much nobodies, because if we were heroes, then we would proclaim us, or we would build each other up in our wisdom. But instead, we're, we're proclaiming him, turning the light off of us onto him, and then we're teaching each other about him, and we are warning each other so that we can follow him, and we're admonishing one another, which, by the way, means to rebuke. It, it, it means to warn sternly. It's a serious word. Admonish is kind of, it kind of can be controversial because people don't, people either do it too much or they don't want to do it, but it says that we're to do that so that we can grow. 
present everyone mature in Christ, which means that we, we grow. That, otherwise, how, you're not maturing if you're not growing. So this scripture is packed full of community, of our hero, and of growth. So growth, Christian growth is a community project. Why do we think that it's, a, it's an individual thing? I don't understand. I mean, if you really think about it. I mean, I've thought the same thing. But, I mean, why, why do we think it's an individual thing? It seems like everybody else in the world, secular world, understands that to grow and to change is not something you can do yourself. But we, but we like to think it is. Even if we say with our mouths, yeah, yeah, it's a community project, a lot of times we think this right here, this setting here is the community and that hearing the, the sermon preached is, the, is what's going to affect the change. And that's what we think. But that's still basically an individual process then because then you take the information you hear and you leave this place and you go about your life uh, as an individual, and so you pretty much think that you're, that's, how, that's how you're going to grow. But, I mean, athletes understand the concept of growing a community, don't they? I mean, they have coaches for everything, for every little part of it. Those coaches aren't always friendly and nice. You know, they don't always sandwich everything they say between two encouragements. Have you ever played a team sport? I mean, I remember, I, I haven't played a lot of team sports, but at, at, in West Texas at New Deal, I got a chance to because it's a little 2A school, and if you go there, you get to play. And if you don't, you get to be ostracized. So, and you were a part of what they called the strawberry gang. I didn't want to be a part of that. So I played a team sport, and you're bumping into each other, and people get mad, and then you get over it, and... People teach each other. A coach, sometimes he would back off and let two people scrap it out. Sometimes he would step in. Athletes understand this. Coaches understand it. I mean, the more time you spend with those other athletes and the coach, the better you get, right? No, practice is not sitting at home and the coach calls you on the phone, gives you a few tips, and then you practice with... It doesn't make any sense. You get together and you have these things we call two-a-days and three-a-days and, and then and practice and practice and practice. It's not all that glamorous. And there's a collective attitude that everyone seems to share that they understand this and accept it and even want it with each other. I mean, writers, let's think in a different realm. What if maybe, you know, like you're a writer have you ever read someone's book and they haven't had it edited? Like, someone wrote a book and they're like, here, read my book. And it's not edited by anybody else except themselves? I mean, I have. Yeah, I mean, there may be some good raw stuff there. But it's, it's not going to be very good. Books have to be edited by someone else. And the process is a back and forth. And the editor is not necessarily the author, but has that authority. And the, and, the, and the author submits to that authority. Writers understand it. Musicians understand it, most of them. And, I mean, being on the worship team for, for a pretty long time, I, I mean, I've lived that. I mean, I've taken coaching from Chase. I don't know where he is. There he is back there. From him, and he's a great coach. But I mean, a lot of times it's just like, see, you've got to, you know, stop doing that. Try this, you know. You get into, ah, that hurts my feelings. You know, I'd never make it if you did that, you know. But musicians understand that. People in the world understand that. But Christians have a very difficult time understanding. Now, I understand in our defense, we are talking about the deepest most intimate areas of our heart. And so, yeah, we want to keep it hidden. We want to keep it locked up, and we want to deal with it ourselves. I get that. Only problem is, 
It doesn't work. It isn't how God designed it to be. Look at all the, all the cooking shows and, and um, you know, American Idol music dancing shows, you know. Isn't it funny how mean chefs have gotten over the years? I always thought a chef was like a nice person, you know, like I'm thinking of the Muppets, you know, the, the puppet, the, the but they're not, they're not playing games, right? They're like a, the drill sergeant, you know? Our gospel communities, and we have those here at Legacy, and, and we'll be talking, I'm going to mention something at the end about them as well. They need... We need to have that kind of atmosphere. I mean, we need it. And, and what it does, it, what it takes is building uh, trust with one another. Um, that takes time. You know there's no substitute for, for that time that it takes. That's, I mean, after all, God, God's the one who designed it that way, that we would even live a life in within the realm of time, that we would be born a baby and that we would grow into a mature adult. Why would it be any different as Christians? And so we need that in our communities. I'd like to put up Proverbs, Proverbs 27, 17. We hear this thrown around all the time. I want to really look at it, okay? Iron sharpens iron and one man sharpens another. Do you notice it doesn't say steel sharpens aluminum? Diamond-bladed saw sharpens, you know, I don't know. What's a soft metal? I'm not a, I'm showing my life. I went to art school, okay? <laughs> sharpens something softer. It doesn't say that. A lot of times I've heard this scripture wielded by the one who is ready to knock some corners off of you, right? Iron sharpens iron. Well, where's my sword then, <laughs> you know? Iron sharpens iron. Those are the same metal, same hardness, same ability to knock edges off of each other. And that's intentional. Because you remember in Colossians it said, admonishing everyone, teaching everyone. If we're all doing that, then we all are teaching each other. We're all admonishing each other. Even, even though we have leaders, we have elders of this church, and then we have, we have our leaders, and then we have their other, you know, systems of leadership, you know, in our families and, and just different roles that we have. But still, I can be sharpened. I can be sharpened by Gary. And we're going to talk about how that's possible, okay? No, I mean, by anybody, not just Gary. I know that it's very possible by Gary. Um, but I'm going to talk, we're going to talk about that. We're going to get there, okay? I want to read Psalms 14.1, uh, 141.14.1. I'm making up my own numbers. 141, uh, verse 4. All right. Uh, do not let my heart, he's praying, do not let my heart incline to any evil, to busy myself with the wicked deeds in company with men who work iniquity, and let me not eat of their delicacies. You go to the next one. Yeah. Let a righteous man strike me, it is a kindness. Let him rebuke me, it is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. Yet my prayer is continually against their evil deeds. It's, that one's just tacked on. It's, it's part of the whole prayer, but um, it's not necessarily part of that particular thought. Um, if you go back and read the whole thing, it will make sense. Um, let a righteous man strike me. That's a funny prayer. You ever prayed that before? No, I mean, have you really? I mean, this week I would, Lord, I would like someone who's righteous to rebuke me. It's going to hurt. That's a hard prayer to pray, isn't it? But we're, but it is a, it is a, it's a good prayer to pray. So in art school, you learn pretty fast uh, that you're not as good as you thought you were. And your teachers are there to help you see that. 
That's their, that's their goal. And so we have these things called critiques in art. And critiques can be kind of brutal. A critique is where you, here's what, it's kind of like this. You pour your heart and soul out on a work of art. All over the canvas, there's my heart and soul laid bare for all to see. I have worked hard. I put every bit of knowledge I have had growing up in elementary school and junior high and high school, and there it is. And then they take that, and they line it up on the wall, and then they basically pick it apart and tear it, you know, tear it to pieces. So there's your heart being shredded, torn to pieces. I mean, it's an interesting process at first because you're really not used to that. You're used to grandma just doting, oh, that's so beautiful, look at the picture. But grandma's not there. We have, you know, all the art students from all, who, wherever they came from. And not only does the teacher, because it, be, it would be one thing to have the teacher who's knowledgeable, you feel like, about art, to say things about your work. But all the other students get to do this too. And they get to, critique is kind of a nice word for criticize. It's just that critique can involve, you know, some positive things. Can. And so they start to do this. The thing is, though, the teacher, he just kind of lets it happen at first. Because what, what happens is all these art students, they think they're pretty good. They're all, they think they're all good, right? So they just let you have it. But then it's their turn. And you get to say something about their work. And the thing is, it starts, it starts knocking some edges off of people. Because you think, ooh, I was pretty rough on that guy. And then he really tore mine apart. Maybe I ought to change my approach next time. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll be a little more respectful. And then the teacher has to, and I do this too with my students, has to really teach how this is to be done. How do you point out things that can be improved upon, point out the merits of it, point out its weaknesses? How do you do that and still do it? Because what you have is you always have the kids, they're the kids that enjoy it way too much. They, oh man, they can't wait. That's so Mickey Mouse, looks like, oh, that's kid, little kid, I've seen but. You know, that's, that's, uh, that's, that's cliched, that's kitsch, that's, you know, whatever, whatever the terms are. That's commercial, you know, it looks like. Uh, but then, and they enjoy it, man. They get a thrill. You can just see their eyes gleaming when they do And then you have the kids that don't want to say anything mean. They don't want to, do, they don't want to say anything to hurt anybody's feelings. They always point out all the wonderful things about it, you know, and you're looking at it going, you're thinking, it's not even as good as you're saying it is. I know it's, you know, that's almost worse than having somebody tear it apart sometimes. <laughs> you have both of those extremes. And, and the goal of, of the teacher is to bring those two things together to a nice balance. You know, to get, to get it so that we, we know that someone is going to give us some criticism, but we know that they're not going to, they're going to do it with, uh, a little bit of respect. They're not, they, they know that I'm going to be doing the same with them. And they welcome it, and I begin to welcome it. And it starts becoming really fun. Where at the beginning, it was the, the thing I dreaded. And the art, you know, work, that was the thing I loved pouring myself into. But then I began to really love and really look forward to the critique. And the interaction I would have even though it kind of hurt a little bit sometimes, you know. It, 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 it was kind of like looking forward to a good workout, knowing that you're going to, and I say this because I work out all the time. No, actually, I, I, I don't much, so I, I have to glean off of hearing Luke talk about it all the time. But he, you know, goes out and rides his, you know, bike, say, or, you know, runs up a hill or whatever, and to the point of his body, you know, actually getting sick sometimes. And he just, but, but he's doing it because he, there's something he loves about it. He knows it's making him stronger. He, 
it, it, he'd start, he desires it. It's something he looks forward to. And so that's the teacher's job. Well, let's look at Ephesians. Um, Ephesians 4. I know I'm flipping through a lot of these, these scriptures. Uh, chapter 4, uh, start with 14 through 16. Now, uh, that scripture I read in Colossians, I think, does, says all that needs to be said. But these are really helpful. Really. Uh, so, okay. What is that? 14? Oh, yeah. So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So part of creating this kind of environment, I mean, look, this is, this is really what's being communicated here is, is a, an atmosphere that is created so that we can grow. And this atmosphere is in community because it's in the body. And the body has parts, and the parts are connected. A body doesn't work when its parts are not connected. It only works when it's connected. And so a lot of times what we have in, in you know, Christian culture is, is we have a hand laying over there, a head over there. Well, not Christ is the head, so he's up here. The foot, a toe over there, a spleen. I don't know if they're used for anything, but they're not connected. Except we, what we try to do is we come together on Sunday morning, and it's sort of like Frankenstein. We try to sew ourselves and go, there, where are the body? And then throughout the week, we're just all by ourselves again. You don't, that's not what he's talking about here. That's not what Paul is saying. When each part is working properly all the time, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And part of creating this is um, creating it in our communities um, and in our relationships. So some of you are hearing me say the word community, and you're like, well, I'm not in that. Okay, then I'm going to start using that word, but I'm going to use the word relationships too. Because those are things that you can be in, and even if you're not in one of legacies communities. And you might also be someone who's like, you know, you may not be a Christian here this morning. And, and so you're like, well, I'm not part of the body, and, and that's true. But this can be freeing for you too. In fact, it, it is freeing for you. Because now you know, you may have thought that you go to church to get everything cleaned up and get, and get right and so that you can do good, and now you're realizing that isn't, what, that isn't what, why you go to church. Going to church is just the body gathering after doing this all the time. And so if, you, if that's you and you're like, I'm not even a part of this body, and this, well then Jesus is inviting you to be a part of that body. He actually died so that you could be, and... You're on the same playing field as everybody was. We're all sinners. It's not glamorous. We all started at the same place. So good news for you. This is how it sometimes breaks down in community, though, this process. First, we think we don't need any help. We have the attitude I had when I went into art school. Everything we do is a masterpiece. Remember that time I did that one time? I did that good deed, and I witnessed to that guy, and I did this and that. I really don't need much work. You know, I have all my ducks in a row, especially when it, in, in regards to the things that are culturally acceptable. I haven't done any of those culturally unacceptable sins. The only ones I struggle with are the little ones that everybody is okay with. And my youth minister liked me a lot. And, you know, he's kind of like the mom. He put your picture on the fridge. And we're like children tossed in. We're like children, basically. So we have a bunch of, of, of little kids. This is where it breaks down sometimes the community. But little kids, like little babies, they can't eat. They can't chew the meat, right? So you give them milk. And Paul talks about this elsewhere in Scripture. So we're little kids, and we're not, we're not able to digest the Word of God for ourselves. We're not, we're not able to do it. We have to have it spoon-fed to us. 
So it kind of breaks down sometimes. Sometimes we don't take time to, to build trust with people. We think they should already trust me because I'm a Christian. Well, why, why is that? Why should, how come in the world everybody understands you earn trust and you build trust with people? Why is that easy to understand? Read Proverbs and you'll find all kinds of scriptures that say otherwise, that yes, you do. You do some things. You want to have friends? Show yourself friendly. And don't talk loud at people early in the morning. They don't like that. There's a lot of practical stuff in Proverbs. We, we need to do that with each other. It takes time. We don't build trust with each other, so it breaks down. So I don't trust the guy who's telling me something. So it's not knocking anything off of me that needs to be knocked off. And then sometimes we harshly criticize, um, and we chalk it up to speaking the truth. And I wanted to, I wanted to kind of talk about that for a minute because we, we, we just read speaking the truth in love, which is so, so very uh, important. But we have to know what that, what that means. Now, let me, we can kind of gauge ourselves. We're going to do a little self-assessment just in, you know, in your mind. Um, if, you, if you are a person who needs to learn more forbearance with people and needs to be gentler with people, then this might be you. Do you enjoy rebuking people? Is that something that you like to do? Feels good. Does it build you up to do that? Is, is that you? Do you really enjoy correcting people sternly? Does that, man, there's something deep inside satisfied when I do that. Well, you might need to learn a little more forbearance then. Paul says to have forbearance for each other each other's faults, right? You might need to, you might be a little heavy on that side. But what if you're, you might be the other guy. What if, is your biggest fear calling somebody up or looking, you know, them in the eyes face to face and pointing out some, you know, area where they are in sin, where they're messing up, warning them? Does that just make your gut tighten up and does it you know does it make you feel kind of sick well then you're you're way over unbalanced on the forbearance side you're going to have a sort of false forbearance for people putting up with stuff you shouldn't and so when you recognize where you are on that then you can ask God to help you because we do this in all wisdom and we do it in love. So, speaking the truth in love. Ephesians said, can we just, uh, I, I don't want to go too fast on this. Go back to Ephesians um, 4. Uh, 14, I guess, is that, that's probably where it said. Oh, yeah, here we go. All right. Okay. So that we may no longer be children, tossed and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Okay, this is um, what we want to avoid. So go to uh, the next uh, 15. Okay. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way in him who is the head into Christ. Here's what some people think speaking the truth in love is. Being brutally honest about everything. Because we're misunderstanding the word truth. We're thinking truth is what I see as true. That's actually not what truth is. That's not what the Bible teaches truth is. Just because I can see your fault doesn't mean I have the truth for you by pointing out that fault. Okay? Now, now don't get me wrong. Sometimes it, you are going to point out a fault. But that itself is not the truth. So now, let's go to Ephesians Uh, one thirteen. Okay, so here's what the truth is. He talks about it earlier in Ephesians. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel, 
of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. That's the truth. So speaking the truth in love is speaking that. And here's, uh, so this is where it also breaks down in our communities and change doesn't happen because we don't know how to preach the gospel to each other. We don't, because we don't know how to say it. We, we don't even know how to explain it. And I say we in a very general sense. Some may be better than others. But as Christians, as a church, as the church at large, we don't. We do not. We're real good at speak, telling them what some, you know, this is where you, you are an impatient man, you know. Well, we're good at that. I'm just speaking the truth in love. Take it. No, I don't know you that well. No, I haven't, you know, taken the time to, you know, get to know you. But I'm a Christian. I'm right. I'm speaking the truth in love. You, you know, you offended me when you did this. Speaking the truth in love. That's not, what, that's not what that scripture is talking about. The truth is the gospel. So how could we do that differently then? So Gary points out that, I mean, Gary gets hurt. He gets offended, let's say, hypothetical. Because I, I don't know what I did. I offended him. I was late. I screened his call or something. I don't know. Now I can never do that because I said that. So he's offended. All right. So, but we've got to we've got to get this thing resolved because he we don't want bitterness to grow in his heart. We're in community together, and iron sharpens iron, and there needs to be some sharpening here because something happened, some sin happened because someone's offended. Okay. So Gary could where this is how we normally do it in community. Uh, Gary could could say he wouldn't do this. I know, but he's. Kevin, you're selfish. You screened my call. You just wanted to, you know, you just wanted to watch the tube. You didn't want to talk to me. I needed you. Okay. So he tells me that. He says, just telling you the truth in love, right? But then let's say we talk a little bit more, and we find out that maybe I was watching the tube and screening this call. Maybe I was. But what were the real issues here? It could be that I was afraid of what Gary might tell me on the phone. So I screened this call. And the reason I was afraid is because I love comfort. And I don't want to hear the uncomfortable truth Gary has to tell me on the phone. Which This is hypothetical, by the way. This didn't happen. I don't want to hear it. Because I am afraid of losing comfort. Forgetting that I am yoked with Jesus, who said, come, take my yoke. My burden is light, easy. I will give you rest. So instead of taking the rest that Jesus has won for me forever, I think I've got to take it for myself. I don't believe the gospel. So I screen Gary's call. So Gary and I are talking. Gary points that out. This is how it could work. This is how it could be beautiful. Gary says, Kevin... Okay, you screamed my call, I forgive you. But what happened? Well, I was comfortable, Gary. I'll be honest with you, and I didn't want to pick up the phone and deal with some hard thing. I had a hard day. Gary says, you know what? Jesus won that rest for you. If you're taking my problem on as your yoke, that's the wrong yoke. You're supposed to have Jesus' yoke. Jesus, Jesus is the one that does all the hard work of transforming my heart, Gary says to me. But I needed you. I needed, I needed to talk to you. Then I could say to Gary, maybe Gary has a fear too. Maybe he feels like a leader is always the person that has to solve his problem. He may not fear that, feel that way, but maybe he does. And so he was afraid that if he didn't get a hold of me, he was going to be in deep despair. But the gospel to him could be, well, Gary, I'm not the hero here. Jesus is the hero. He's the one that's going to pull you out of despair. He's the one that lifted you up out of the mire and clay and put you on the rock, not Kevin Gentry. But I should repent. I'm sorry I screened your call that time. 
I apologize. We forgive each other. We give each other a big hug. I let him pop my back because I like it when he does that. And, and, and then we're in community. We, we, we have grown. How? Because we, we know how to talk the gospel to each other. So how does community actually help you grow very, very practically? That's one way. But how do you know then? Well, being in community helps you measure growth. So, now, I may have met, you know, if I'm, I met Jeff, no, now I can't remember how long ago, a year and a half, two years, I don't know, a long time ago, I met Jeff. Yeah, huh? 14 months, he hasn't met. <laughs> Golly. Now we have an offense, no. Um, known him for a long time. So, um, what he's seen, he has watched me and I've watched him. Now, here's the deal. We have a hard time being able to see if, how much we've grown ourselves, right? If we're the only person in, you know, that we ever look at, it's hard to see growth. Tim Keller explained it really, really well uh, by, by comparing it to a tree. A tree grows really, really slowly. You almost can't, I mean, you can't see it unless you use time-lapse photography. It grows extremely slowly. Well, how do you know it grows? Because you can measure it. You can met, oh, it's grown two feet. I see that it's grown. But I thought it was dead. No, that was wintertime. The leaves fell off. Don't be fooled. It's growing. So I met, when I met Jeff, he was different than he is now. Now, I don't know if he notices that, but I do. Because I'm another person. I'm not him just, you know, going through life, just, you know, doing things Jeff does, making artwork out of, Iron and welding stuff, you know, he makes fire pits and stuff, real creative. He's just going along doing things. He may not notice it, but I can look at Jeff and say, Jeff, you've grown. Your attitude about serving on the worship team is really way better than it was. How do I know? Because I hear the things you say now, and I see the things you do, and I see your faithfulness. See, I can, I can measure his growth. So we can do that with each other. That makes it really practical for us. That's why we need to be around each other. Another way that that this should happen in our communities, that it can be really practical, is we can use our spiritual gifts with each other. Real hard to do that by yourself. I mean, I guess you can stand and teach in the mirror. I do. But... It really helps if you've got somebody to teach. You may have a prophecy for someone. Real hard for them to hear it if you can't speak it to them. If you keep it under wraps. People can help you when you fall. Can we look at Ecclesiastes, my other favorite book in the Bible, 419. No, don't worry. It's not the your dust one, I promise. All right. Ecclesiastes 49. All right, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. (laughs) But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? So that's, that's real practical, isn't it? If you're around community, you're around your family, one of you falls, the other picks you up. And so that's growth. That's Christian growth. Well, how, how do we, what's the main tool that we use to do all of those things? What is the main tool we use to admonish? What's the main tool we use to pick someone up? What's the main tool we use for measurement? It's the gospel. That's what you use. That's what we use. That's what we, and, and here's the thing. The gospel, and, and this will be the, I think this is the last scripture. So go back to the very first one, Colossians 1.28. The gospel is not just a message. It's a person. Otherwise, it wouldn't say him we proclaim. It would say It. It doesn't say that. It says him. So the gospel 
is not in it. It's Jesus Christ. It's him. It's his life. It's his work that he did at the cross. It's his, life, his resurrection. It's his blood. It's, his, it's the story, his story from beginning to end. And that's what the gospel is. And that's what the truth is. And that's what we speak to each other in love. And that's how we grow in community. I want to think, I want to close here um, with this part of our service today. Um, with thinking, I don't have the scriptures to show it, but some of you are familiar with it. But I was just, as I was preaching today, I was thinking, I kept having, you know, kept being reminded of Peter, the apostle, the great apostle Peter. And don't you remember when he denied Christ? He denied Jesus three times. Remember that? That's a famous story. We love, we love to hear that. I guess it makes us feel better. We're like, well, if he did it. <laughs> Man, he was right there. He saw him. He still denied him. He denied Jesus three times. Jesus said, you're going to do it, and he did it. That was the lowest point. He needed, he needed to grow. He needed to change. But do you remember in Acts what, what happened with Peter? Remember he stood up and emboldened by the Holy Spirit? He did the opposite of denying Christ, but instead boldly proclaimed the gospel, boldly proclaimed Christ in the presence of people who were mocking and people who were not mocking, but just boldly. And, 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 and in Scripture, it talks many times about how they were praying in a room. They were, as was the custom, they, were, they, they, they met in the synagogues. They met in homes. They were in community constantly. This growth happened through the gospel. Even Peter needed the gospel. Even the apostle Peter needed the gospel to change. And that's what he needed. That's the only way he could have done what he did. So, guess what? You're not as great as you think you are, but that's a great place to be. We're all on the same level when it comes to uh, growth. We need to grow. We only have one hero. None of us are it. So at whatever level you are in your maturity or in leadership or whatever, just know you're not the hero. He is. And that is a very freeing place to be. So when you hear us talking about community, inviting you in, talking about relationship, bumping into each other, don't think of it as oppressive. Think of it as freedom. It's, it's one way that, that God has chosen to work out and embody the gospel as we commend it and proclaim it.